What I'm saying is that the racial unevenness of urban redevelopment and its gains results in the perpetuation of an unsustainable sort of urban environment and settlement patterns and lifestyles. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Lily Song, an urban planner whose work centers on the experiences of marginalized groups in policy and urban development. Lily joins us today to discuss her concept of race and place. Welcome. Thank you. So Lily, your work on race and place has focused on, among other things, American cities. Can you just begin by explaining for our audiences, um, what do you mean by race and place? Well, by race and place, I really try to attend to the history of racial stratification and environmental injustice at the heart of American urban formations. And building on that history, I simultaneously attend to present efforts by cities and city leadership to institutionalize urban sustainability and sort of the racial um, and uneven sort of dimensions of that. When you say racial stratification, what do you mean by that? So I mean the spatialization of racial inequality. And really, by race and place, I mean how racism has fundamentally shaped urban formations and governance in the United States, starting with land takings from racialized indigenous people to settlement patterns that were largely segregated by race, um, as well as class, of course urban renewal and redevelopment that um, unevenly appropriated land from different racialized um, groups, as well as sort of the uneven infrastructure investments that have gone into and through um, out metropolitan regions in the United States. Why does race come to the fore for you in relationship to other forms of identity? I would say that race comes to the fore because it has really driven a lot of spatial development patterns. If you look at sprawl, which is particularly accentuated in the American context, a lot of that was driven by sort of speculative real estate markets, but also federal housing policy, right? Redlining and sort of the systematic refusal to lend in certain neighborhoods to certain groups. And um, the private sector, right? And by that, I mean sort of the real estate boards that were formed in cities like Cleveland um, and, and the United States. They used racialized marketing techniques as well, you know, to do blockbusting and kind of um, make a lot of profits and sell in new neighborhoods on this notion or identity of racial homogeneity. And so I see that as really implicated. So racism is really implicated in urban sprawl and the very carbon-intensive um, environment that we live in today. And you're suggesting this is not simply an historic formulation? Are you suggesting in your work that race is still a primary lens through which we should understand the American city today? I would say that mostly because we are seeing... Um, trends where many communities of color that have historically been in the urban core are now sort of feeling um, rising costs of living, um, and they are moving out 
And so there's growing research kind of showing that they're moving into areas less served by transit where, you know, they have more utility bills and they have a greater sort of energy burden to just keep up their lifestyles in these new environments. When there are higher income groups or whites, oftentimes in some cities it's Asians who move in um, with greater resources, they're not always using transit and they're not always walking. And so they may live in these walkable neighborhoods um, and very amenity-rich neighborhoods, but they're not necessarily reducing their carbon footprint. What I'm saying is that the racial unevenness of urban redevelopment and its gains results in the perpetuation of an unsustainable sort of urban environment and settlement patterns and lifestyles. So in, in your work, you're, you're connecting uh, race, um, spatial infrastructural development to questions of sustainability and energy efficiency. Can you explain what that set of relationships is about? Part of it is about sort of disrupting dominant narratives about sustainability, where it's often about technical solutions, you know, geoengineering or kind of best practices um, and, you know, kind of asking who is sustainable, you know, who has been sustainable, who is a leader in this space, and also showing that the solutions are not as technical. I mean, we've, we have a lot of technical solutions. We don't use them because of political problems, because of social problems. So kind of showing that to actually create a more sustainable, you know, environment actually requires us to also deal with issues of racism and justice that have long sort of separated our society and caused people to live in different neighborhoods in energy intensive ways. Would it be fair to say that in that regard, your research is interested to use um, contemporary concerns to address a very longstanding set of uh, questions around racial equity and spatial distribution? Yes, which is why I'm very interested in transit investments and transit-oriented development, as well as energy efficiency, food planning. So I'm, I'm really interested in these urgent but intractable policy planning and design dilemmas. Much of your research is focused on the examples of uh, Los Angeles and Cleveland. Can you tell us something more about why Los Angeles and Cleveland uh, exemplify those conditions? Absolutely. So L.A., of course, it was taken by those who were acting in the name of the Spanish throne um, from indigenous people. It was part of Mexico, which was then taken by American settlers. And so race is very much um, a part of the early settlement of Los Angeles, but also the role of tourism and real estate from the earliest sort of period of urban growth. Race was really key to identity formation, so this sort of pastoral, you know, mission era with the docile natives and, you know, the very benevolent fathers of the missions to the cowboys and Indians, Hollywood. And so L.A. is a very interesting space. Real estate development also played a huge role, and much of that was along racial lines. And so um, through my dissertation research, I found that in 1920, I think African-Americans could only buy 5% of the housing stock because of racial covenants and lending and um, practices and things. So, um, and as well as the labor market in L.A., it has been segregated, you know, from the early days. If you look at the unions, too, they were very racially um, exclusive. Cleveland, too, it's it's different from L.A. in that industrial manufacturing played more of a role. And yet 
even in the early days of industrialized urbanization, um, European immigrants were stratified by ethnicity. So the northern Europeans lived in certain areas. Later, the southern and eastern Europeans lived in other areas. Um, But their sort of identities, and this is before, I guess, they kind of became white, but especially many of the Jewish um, Central and um, Eastern European residents, they were very militant oftentimes, and they agitated and they organized and they joined forces with um, actually rarely with African-American workers, but with other Europeans. And so race, identity, it did play a role in how Cleveland evolved as an industrial city. It's interesting how you describe uh, Los Angeles and its historic development in that each um, era in its colonial history, in its colonization, in its erasure of previous modes, selects a kind of identity for itself. And often, as you're suggesting, that identity is expressed in architectural terms. It's a question of architectural style that becomes almost a kind of marketing image for the city. And as you suggest, in in choosing those images, we're also choosing certain winners and losers of history and certain peoples whose histories have been erased. So in in that context, um, is that history in a place like Los Angeles still uh, evident to you spatially? Is it still evident in the communities that are there? I think the built environment has really been changing. A lot of it is driven by very high-end development. There are some residents and community groups who are contesting transit investments because they often exacerbate sort of the upscaling effects of urban redevelopment. And so um, the built environment, you know, it's intensified, it's gotten higher, it's gotten fancier, (laughs) for lack of a better word. It's, I mean, some may even argue that it's lost sort of the identity of L.A. or, or these neighborhoods, though that is arguable because much of that kind of architecture that many are nostalgic for are really kind of these colonial types of, you know, Spanish colonial or two-door kind of, right? So the, the landscape of um, urban development that you're, you're describing in your work is, I think, in many ways uh, legible, familiar to many of us. Uh, uneven, uh, you know, a kind of structural inequality about distribution of resources, unequal access to um, fundamental rights, education and health care. And at the same moment, a very challenging history of urban interventions. A part of what your work suggests to me, and I, I wonder if you'd agree with this assessment, is that in fact um, each era of urban development has used urban space in some ways to reinforce questions of racial and ethnic identity. I think there have been some particular sort of movements and policies that have been key in reinforcing racial inequality over time, the conservative movement, especially from the 50s, rising in Southern California. And so here I think we have to acknowledge that racism isn't just about the racial other, but also much of the white working class that identifies as white. And through that sort of bargain is then less resistant. This is sort of the critique that black radical scholars have brought, is that they're less resistant to plutocracy, the sort of governing of the United States by economic and political elites. And so they are more inclined to be in allegiance with other whites than with their class-based kind of counterparts who are of different races. And so 
going back to the conservative revolution, as we call it, that politics of, you know, racial resentment, right? Nixon and Reagan and kind of stoking these insecurities, I guess, because this was also a time when the United States was slowing down, you know, economically in terms of growth. And and so they, they, they were stoking these fears and insecurities and resentments and using race following on the sort of heels of the civil rights movement and the gains and then the sort of protests against Vietnam and women's rights and identity politics and and so, you know, using working class or white identity to then kind of undo a lot of these gains, but also the Keynesian state, you know, the whole social welfare system as we knew it. Um, and so that has really entrenched inequality, not just racially, but along class lines. So I think that there's nothing inherent about these things. It doesn't have to be. And yet, there have been these trends and moments that have really reinforced and solidified these over time. I mean, a part of what you're describing in this conversation, but also is evident in your work, is a kind of parallel or dual system. That on the one hand, we have a political economy in which private capital really expresses itself and reproduces itself. And the shape of the city is often the, the resultant of uh, a set of uh, relationships about capital uh, as much as anything else. And we have, um, you know, an increasingly kind of vibrant and active civil discourse around questions of race and ethnicity and identity and a kind of increasingly vibrant, I think, kind of political conversation. But they seem so often uh, disconnected. Are, are there examples or cases uh, from your research that uh, we might be more optimistic about? Are there examples of either resistance to or uh, progressive models around these challenges? Yes. And that is precisely the question that much of my research has focused on is sort of these alternative templates of urban and economic development within highly unequal and segregated metropolitan areas. But I would push back a bit on the characterization of these dualities between sort of capital-driven urban development on one hand and then racially aligned groups and civil society activism. I think these things are very much related. The reason that capital in the last 30, 40 years in particular, so private capital has been able to play such a role in driving urban redevelopment and urban pathways has been in large part because of federal retrenchment and sort of pulling the peeling back of the state and its role and its regulations of, you know, environmentally speaking, market-wise and socially. And that goes back to the conservative revolution, which built on a politics of racial resentment. So I see these things as really interrelated. Clearly, there are aspects of the uh, um, periodization of economy in your work. And in the most present, most recent, uh, we might call uh, neoliberal economic formation, we see this withering of the state apparatus and the, state, uh, the state's ability to intervene, much less to regulate in certain contexts as an active project. And at the same moment, of course, your, your work touches also on a history of um, urban renewal and race and ethnicity in which the, the most robust welfare state in the 20th century was itself using questions of race and identity as a, as a way to organize itself and its thinking about the urban. So are you suggesting that these challenges are simply intractable to American culture or are there, are there models or examples we can look at? So I really appreciate that question. I think there are absolutely moments and models that we can look at. Crisis moments are especially key. 
So a moment of recent history that I was particularly excited about was, and, and this may be kind of sinister, but it was after the Great Recession. And so when the financial market crashed, when the housing market crashed, people were searching for different development models, very much desperate for new ideas. I think this was a real period of reckoning among um, those interested in urban economic development in particular. And this was also a time when it was Obama's first term when we had the stimulus, um, the economic stimulus package. So there was a bigger role of the federal government following the crisis. There was also a rethinking of templates, right, for growth. Um, And then I think also the institutionalization of sustainability by cities over the last 20 years, I think that has also seeded an opportunity um, to think in more sort of systemic or interdisciplinary almost ways. And from this sort of agitation or this movement for green-collar jobs, um, for sustainable sort of urban development templates, I think that sort of impetus was created, and we see that continuing today with the Green New Deal, right, that Ocasio-Cortez just introduced quite recently. You're reminding me, uh, in the wake of the Great Recession, 08-09, we've seen uh, in other parts of the world, certainly across Western Europe, many, many cooperative forms uh, of housing projects. So, of course, we've seen in recent years a range of artist cooperatives, uh, labor and union activists and organizers, and other forms of, um, let's say, you know, differently capitalized formations to monetize housing. Um, have you found examples like that in your work in the United States? We don't really think of the United States as being rich in examples of worker democracy or economic democracy. And and yet the Midwest is, has an overrepresentation, a large representation. But there have also been more recent iterations. And coming out of the Great Recession and the institutionalization of sustainability principles by cities, there's been, you know, new models like Evergreen Cooperative Network in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's really interesting because it's not just a worker cooperative model, but it's very much tied to place and a place that's been underinvested. I think one of the challenges for the cooperative movement in the United States has been that they tend to be born among people who know each other very well. They're often of Scandinavian descent in the Midwest. And so um, there's at the same time been a tradition of cooperatives in the American South among um, African-American communities, but it hasn't really been, um, you know, sort of in the mainstream or gained that much attention from planners. And so Evergreen has been an exciting model because it's about anchor-based community development as much as worker cooperatives. So the model is really how do you assemble the procurement capacities of these wealthy institutions and then point them to adjacent communities, spur business opportunities or business development opportunities, which then help support the creation of worker cooperatives. So that's a a really interesting and exciting model that's since been, I wouldn't say replicated, but inspired aligned efforts. There's one in the Bronx called the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, also an anchor-based cooperative development strategy. So they're worker co-ops, and I find these to be very... um, contemporary and American because they are about the unevenness of 
American urban development as much as serving racialized, underrepresented groups, you know, in the worker develop or worker cooperative space. So you've been involved in the Future of the American City Initiative at the GSD, and you've been working um, as a part of that initiative in and on um, the city of Miami. Can you tell us a little bit about why uh, Miami comes to the fore as a venue for extending the research you've been doing? Miami is such a fascinating place for me because it reminds me a lot of Los Angeles, but it's also very distinct. I think the role of tourism from its early days and the role of speculative real estate development and driving urban growth as opposed to the kind of traditional industrial manufacturing has posed similar challenges because with that type of urban formation and urban growth, the allocation of space becomes very important because on one hand, in the American context, they're very dependent on racialized labor for services and for construction and kind of that speculative building and boom and bust cycles. But at the same time, they are very careful to manage. And it's not to say there is one city and there has been an intention or, you know, sort of brain behind it. But what has happened is been that that has kind of reinforced segregation because of the value of urban space when an economy is based on real estate development and tourism. And so who who is where seems to have have been and be very important. Are there particular communities or particular initiatives in Miami that you focused on that you think are interesting or exemplary in some way? We really focused on Overtown. And in Overtown, we learned about different community initiatives. And it was almost a microcosm of American racial politics, the community development field, the continuing sort of growth of cities, the current moment globally of an urban-based economic development. And because you're in Overtown, you you kind of feel the spatial encroachment, the high-rises kind of coming in from all sides. Um, You see all this massive infrastructure investment. There's three CDCs, community development corporations. Um, There seems to be quite a competition for resources. And so... There's definitely a lot of the dilemmas that we see in a lot of American cities and cities like Los Angeles. But I think some of the more interesting models were actually, dare I say, traditional in a radical sense because, okay, so I think of Adrian Madriz, who is the executive director of Smash, like Smash as in Smash the Landlords. And they're trying to set up a community land trust um, in in Liberty City, but part of what they do is also just organize to improve tenant living conditions. And the organizing component is really great because what I think many neighborhoods like Overtown are finding is that despite affordable housing development, despite Miami doesn't have inclusionary zoning as a policy, but even if when there is inclusionary zoning, if there's 20%, 30%, it's great. But typically, if they're at 80% area median income, you know, the, the way that these affordable units are priced, the existing residents typically can't afford to live in these new units because the existing residents are often at 20% of area median income. 
And so given that situation, if you developed, you know, a lot of affordable housing and it, they were all at 60 or 80, 40 even, the existing residents can't really afford to stay in these neighborhoods. So it becomes a matter of preservation and upgrading the places where existing residents are. And that's why the tenant organizing and holding landlords accountable is essential. And that, that's the part that I found exciting. So in Overtown, uh, you're working in uh, an historic African-American community that's had um, had quite the history. It's had, of course, the effects of um, massive urban infrastructure, highways, uh, and also a history of, I, th- I think it's fair to characterize, a-, a lack of trust in relationship to the planning efforts of the city more broadly. Is, is that fair? That seems to be what we found as well. We found also that There's a lot of dense relationships in the neighborhood. People have been living in Overtown for generations. Some of them are of Bahamian descent. Their ancestors built, like literally built the city. People who work in Overtown, they don't necessarily live there anymore. Some come back to go to church or, you know, to get a haircut or see somebody. We found that there's much more than what is immediately visible and that it has an enormous value at a regional level beyond um, Overtown itself. And that there seems to be a lot of relationships of trust within the neighborhood, but that given the sort of overwhelming amount of infrastructure burdens that Overground has had to bear, and now the sort of spatial encroachment from a lot of the new redevelopment projects, um, that people are skeptical that new development will necessarily benefit them. Well, it's one of the great um, tragedies of 20th century urban planning, that in fact, the infrastructure that bisected places like Overtown rarely served those communities, actually. Uh, And if you look at whether it's automobile transit or other forms of mobility, we have communities uh, like Overtown in every city across the country. In in this context, uh, and based on your work uh, in Miami and in Overtown, what are your recommendations, Lily? What do we do going forward with uh, a context like Overtown? There is now new investment. There's new investment in transit. There's upgrades of these neighborhoods. And people want to stay. And it may be that historically people were forced to live in places, but now they've been there for generations and they have lives and relationships built around these places. And so to me, the most important thing is for them to have a choice to stay, options And the fact that many of these neighborhoods that were overwhelmed by highway construction, like Boyle Heights in Los Angeles, Overtown in Miami, they're also near transit, you know, new transit. And so the sort of geography of access, right, is is changing. And so if we could ensure that people can stay, whether it's through affordable housing, which is insufficient, but, you know, sort of strengthening tenants' rights to stay, um, improving existing housing stock, but also the security of tenants to remain in these places as they improve. That's where my recommendations would really emphasize. In our work uh, in Miami, we've um, worked closely with uh, Jimmy Morales, who's the the city manager of the city of Miami Beach. And um, Jimmy Morales is an extraordinary public uh, servant. He's someone who grew up in this community of Miami Beach. Uh, He went to Miami Beach High School 
and his parents worked working class, worked um, in Miami Beach as a part of that tourist economy that you describe. And yet today, uh, what Jimmy tells me is it's almost impossible for that set of service jobs to be supported by people that live in and around that community. And the combination in Miami of housing prices with commute times makes it among the worst metro areas for affordability and equity in the United States. So in in that context, given Overtown's uh, centrality, uh, its relative density, but its historic significance, can you give us some idea about the role that Overtown might play in enabling a denser, more walkable, more transit-based future for the center of Miami? It seems like there is an appetite for redevelopment of Overtown. It's also been zoned for more intense development. And so I wouldn't throw my support behind, you know, any project in particular, but it just seems like intensification of these land uses will happen over time. And it's visible in this sort of skyline just, you know, behind Overtown, right? I think the question is if people can stay and how will people stay? So are there measures to ensure that people are able to stay or is it just a matter of upscaling and displacement and further redevelopment and further upscaling and displacement? And so that's where the sort of organizing efforts to hold landowners accountable and preserve affordable housing in the meantime, you know, even when land transactions occur, the lots are vacant. And we we walked through Overtown many times, we thought they were parks, and they were just these vacant parcels. And so being able to ensure that people in the meantime, in the longer term, have access to affordable living options within Overtown, even as it intensifies in land use and land development, I think that's sort of the pivotal piece. Well, that's very clear. And it's very hopeful. Um I think it paints a, a potentially optimistic future in which there's obviously, you know, many challenges ahead, a lot of work to be done. But given the relative, you know, vacancy uh, of so many parcels and given the relative modesty of that claim that can we simply allow people to make the choice to remain as members of this community and in an affordable way, there is so much untapped potential there. It strikes me um, this now becomes a question for us of um, what are the mechanisms for implementing such a thing? There is a lot of untapped potential. And I think this is where there's inspirations from places like Evergreen. And so the fact that Overtown is so close to the agglomeration of hospitals, right, that there are a lot of resources in that cluster. There's procurement capacities and that they could perhaps be redirected or even directed toward places like Overtown, I think would create more business development, um, employment opportunities, potentially spawning worker cooperatives, but also kind of worker cooperatives that enable people to enter with the skills that they have and then develop their skill sets and their career sort of opportunities within these organizations. Um, so I think there's there are hopeful opportunities. The other thing is that Miami's a growing city, right? And there is investment and there is development. And so there's energy and the question of there there is enough. And so how do you redistribute it or how do you create value that is more inclusive in terms of redistribution? You know, whether it's through linkage fees or inclusionary zoning or 
land value capture? Are there instruments that would allow some of the growth and some of the surplus in real estate profits that result oftentimes partly from, in large part, from public investment, not just private investment? Could that also benefit people who have been living in these neighborhoods for a long time? In this space, we've uh, spoken with Jesse Keenan, uh, and we've discussed his concept of uh, climate gentrification, in which a place like uh, like Overtown in his, is, in his, his view, quite vulnerable, given both its elevation and centrality in the context of changing land values. So, Willie, from your perspective on the American city, or Miami in particular, what's this relationship between climate change, sea level rise, and storm event how do you see that folding into your thinking about the development of a place like Overtown? Well, I see more of the same, actually. I feel like communities of color in the United States have long occupied environments of great vulnerability. They've often shouldered disproportionate environmental risks. And so there's a lot of research on the bottoms in many cities and Overtown is sort of the opposite of that. But this vulnerability to environmental trends and that vulnerability is created by markets and social structures that people have created, I don't think that that's new. We've talked with uh, Moisen Mustafavi, his you know, formulation of the future in the American city. And in, in Moisen's view, this is not simply a project of describing the conditions as found, but suggests a new role for the academy, really, in convening uh, these kinds of conversations. Um, He also suggests maybe a new role for the education of the architect. And so in in that context, my, my question for you, Lily, is the idea of the architect planner, the urbanist, uh, being engaged, convening these conversations, does that suggest to you a new model or a new paradigm for educating the planner? This challenge of a new sort of pedagogy, a new education of design and planning professionals, that's a very timely one. If I were to sort of comment on what should happen in the education of designers and planners in a way that really looks forward, I think part of it is about disrupting or coming up with new ways to understand places like Overtown in the future of the American city, really challenging sort of these dominant narratives about poverty or victimization, and also this the sort of logics of urban development and redevelopment of growth necessarily sort of resulting in shared gains for the public. The other thing I think that is central is interrogating the positionality of the academic institution. What does it mean for us to come into neighborhoods, into communities? To me, it means that designers and planners need to learn to listen better and learn from what people are doing, but also step in and tap into the resources and the skills that they have so that they can design and propose with these partners on the ground. Um, And the third thing I think, which is really important, is being bold and really kind of forward-looking. So as much as, you know, we're saddled by history (laughs) and a lot of challenges, how might we really rethink 
the relationships of people and how they interact with the built environment and sort of lifestyles. And so what can we do and how can we create disruptive ideas and put them into motion? I mean, this points to a hybridized role for the designer, planner, uh, neither of which is purely being a professional, not purely bringing technical competence and deferring to the political economy, its own self-organization, nor simply the designer planner as simply advocate. You're arguing that there is a role for the designer's capacity for imagining in a kind of co-creation with community. And that's a, a new form. I mean, that's a model that we've seen glimpses of at certain moments, but certainly this configuration of the architect planner that's embedded and engaged with community in an ongoing sense, that seems, that seems quite clear as a new paradigm. I think we've learned about the failings of modernist <laughs> design and planning interventions and sort of the lack of engaging with political economies. And so that ideas that were quite radical were often implemented by more sort of private or, you know, market-based interests. And so we've learned that. And I fear that planners and designers sometimes come into position of self-flagellation almost and kind of a reluctance or paralysis of intervening. And so I think that that intervention is very important, but an intervention that's built on listening and understanding not just the context, the history, but also the capacities of people who are already there and doing the work. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham, and Jeffrey Vallade is our recording engineer. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.